Very welcome. If you're new, it's a good week to have come for the first time. We're just starting a new series called Unexpected. And uh, we're going to be looking over the next few Sundays at the unexpected aspects of Jesus' birth. And uh, today we're going to start by looking at his genealogy, which for me was quite unexpected. <laughs> but I've got so much out of this family tree. For those of you that are aware, at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, uh, has Jesus' family tree presented to us, and we'll go through that shortly. <laughs> but I've got so much out of it as I've kind of prepared this, this, uh, the talk, the sermon today. So I really hope that we, we're going to see some really interesting and new things, just simply by looking at some of Jesus' ancestors. So as we were talking earlier, it's, it's the run-up to Christmas, it's getting busy. I don't know about you, but um, we've, we've already started the, the preparations, the thinking, who we're going to spend the day with, Christmas Day itself. Is it with our families, or do our families come to us? Um, actually, I was with my family yesterday. I'm one of seven siblings, so there are a lot of us when we get together. So my parents, seven of us, and 21 nephews and nieces that I've got uh, all together. So that was really good fun. Uh, and it's nice, really, having those generational meetings where you're with children, you're with people of sort of your generation, uh, and you're with you know, a generation above you. And in fact, there's quite a, an interest, I think, in looking at our, our families, our, the histories of our families. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of a, a TV program called Who Do You Think You Are?, where they take a celebrity each week, a minor celebrity, Mary Berry, for example, not so minor, but Mary Berry, <laughs> a good celebrity, and they ask her to uh, explore her family tree with some experts, and they bring some, they bring some interesting insights into Mary Berry as a result of the insights that they gain through looking at her family tree. And uh, I've been doing some of that myself. I've been doing a little bit of delving into my own family tree. I came up with quite a quite you know, some interesting uh, characters, a couple in particular. One guy who in the First World War was uh, a field marshal. You see him up here, actually. Um, just to emphasize, these, they look like me, but they're not me. <laughs> they're, they are not me dressed up. Um, this guy in the, in the First World War, a field marshal, quite an interesting character, and I think I get a lot of my kind of military bearing from him. Um, <laughs> And a hundred years earlier, uh, one of my family members was in the, the gold rush in America, became very wealthy. And I think I get a lot of my dress sense from him, especially, I especially like his top hat. <laughs> but just to emphasize, they are not me dressed up. They are my actual ancestors. Um, so, and I've learned a lot through doing that, that I'll come clean. They are me dressed up. <laughs> but I want to make it absolutely clear that I did not have these photos taken for the purposes of today's sermon. Right, they were photos I happened to have on the iMac. Right? And this one is not the Midwest in 1816. It's uh, Chessington World of Adventures in 2012. Right? <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, I wish I did know more about my family tree, but that's about the extent of it from my perspective. Now, right at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, as I said just now, he presents us with Jesus' family tree. And there is a lot to be learned from looking at Jesus' ancestors. In fact, right at the top of the gospel, he calls it the family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so what I'm going to do is uh, we'll go through that passage, uh, I'll read that out, and then we'll just pick out some names uh, that I think we can learn something from. And th for those of you who are taking notes, I've called this uh, the royal... We've talked about three aspects of Jesus' family. We'll talk about his royalty, talk about his humanity, and we'll talk about his perfection. And that will become clear as we, as we go through what Matthew wants to tell us. So let's read the, the passage. The family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham... 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And some of these names will be in the quiz at the end of the sermon. <laughs> and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, look, if you're anything like me, you start thinking about Christmas. You want to hear about angels and wise men and the stable and the manger. But Matthew has a different idea. He wants to show us Jesus' family tree. He wants us to understand that Jesus is the long-awaited king, a direct descendant of King David. And he was this unexpected king. They were expecting at the time someone that would liberate them from Roman occupation. The nation of Israel was part of, Roman, part of the Roman Empire. And they were under a terrible yoke. The Romans were very brutal with the people that they uh, took over and conquered. And the Jews at the time were looking ahead to the arrival of a king that would liberate them from, from Roman domination. So there's that aspect of the unexpected arrival of Jesus because he was not the king they were hoping for at the time. They wanted a king that would liberate them from this harsh, this harsh yoke of the Roman Empire. So that's one aspect of the unexpected. Uh, another aspect of the unexpected is some of the characters that we're going to see in Jesus' family tree. Matthew wants to make it very clear to us that as well as the royalty of Jesus' ancestors from King David, King Solomon, and others that we'll talk about, there are also some very unexpected characters in his family tree, some, 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 real, you know, some outsiders, some people that did terrible things, but nevertheless were drawn in to be part of Jesus' family tree. And that's something that we can hold on to as we think of ourselves and the way we relate to Jesus. So as I said, if you're taking notes, I've called this Jesus Christ, the perfect human king. And we'll see how Matthew uses his family tree, Jesus' family tree, to emphasize the royal kingship of Jesus, uh, some very human elements of his family background, the humanity of the king, and the perfection of Jesus himself. And those three strands come out very clearly as you go through that family tree. So let's start by looking at what Matthew wants us to know about the royalty of Jesus. And Matthew introduces Jesus to us right at the top as Jesus Christ, the son of David. So who was David? Well, I want you to picture a hillside a thousand years before Jesus was born, a hillside in Israel, actually in Bethlehem. Very hot, very arid, nothing except scrubland, the odd tree, some grass, but very, very hot. 
And there's a little boy, a really small boy, who's a shepherd lad, looking after the sheep for his father. His father was called Jesse. And he's out there, just minding his own business, looking after the sheep. That's what he did. He was a shepherd boy. So that's David on the hillside, the shepherd boy. Over here, in his father's house, in Jesse's house, a prophet had just arrived called Samuel. And Samuel had come to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel. Samuel knew that in this house, he would find the next king of Israel. And he tells Jesse, I've come to anoint one of your sons as the next king of Israel. Bring them out to me. So David brings them out one at a time. This is my first son. Surely you mean him. Samuel says, no, it's not him. This is my tallest son. Surely him. No, it's not him. This is my cleverest son. No. And it goes, no, no, no. And eventually Samuel says, look, you must have another son because God told me to come to this house to anoint the next king of Israel. So Jesse says, well, I do have this young lad out on the hillside. We'll go and get him. So they bring David into the house. And immediately Samuel says, yes, that's the next king of Israel. And he anoints him. And David becomes the king that Israel needed at that time. Israel then was very fragmented, a very difficult place to live in, lots of fighting and and strife. And David united that kingdom a thousand years before Jesus was born and brought all the trappings of royalty and kingship to Israel. So you, you get a palace, you get an army, you get wealth, you get royalty. And the Jews at Jesus' time always look back to that period of their history as a real golden era with King David on the throne. And towards the end of David's life, God spoke to him and said some quite unusual things. God said to him, I will raise up your offspring, David, after you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, David already had a son called Solomon. And so that, that was obviously his successor. Solomon would become the next king. So God didn't need to tell David, your son will become king after you. That was already about to happen. And what God was saying to David is, I'm going to put an everlasting king on your throne. I'll read it again. He said, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and his throne shall be established forever. Now Solomon, as I said, did become king after David and, and took the kingdom even further, if that were possible. Uh, more wealth, more wisdom, more royalty. But he wasn't a king forever. He had a limited lifespan, as do all human kings. And Matthew is absolutely determined that we see that Jesus is that eternal king. Jesus is that promised king. And throughout the Old Testament, there are lots and lots of predictions that God would send a man to be the saviour of the world, to be his king on earth. So let's look now at what Matthew has to say about the humanity of Jesus' family tree. And there are lots of people in his family tree that we can identify with much more easily than perhaps we could identify with a king. Another reason that his family tree is so important to us is that it establishes him firmly in history. He's not a Robin Hood or a Santa Claus. He's got a He's got history behind him. He's rooted through generations and generations of previous people that had lived before him. And I want to just pick out a couple of people from his family tree. The first one we're going to look at is Ruth. And Ruth is named, somewhat unusually, in the actual family tree. Just here you can see the name Ruth. 
Now, up until that point, you've mostly got the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. You've got a couple of uh, women as the mothers, but Ruth is one of the first we see whose mother was Ruth. And Matthew really needs us to understand there's something interesting about Ruth, something that we need to think about. Now, Ruth was, uh, was from a country called Moab, which is in modern-day Jordan. She wasn't an Israelite. She lived in Moab, just near Israel. And she was there, young girl, on her own, single. And one day she meets a woman from Israel called Naomi, who's come to Moab because of a big famine in Israel. And Naomi has emigrated out of Israel to Moab with her two sons. And after a time, Ruth falls in love with one of her sons, and they get married. And all goes well for a few years. And tragically, Naomi's son then dies. And so Ruth finds herself a widow, a young widow. And at around that time, the famine ends in Israel, and Naomi decides that she will go back to Israel. And she says to Ruth, look, I'm so sorry, you are now a widow at such a young age. I need to go back to Israel. You need to establish yourself here. You need to get back to your family. You need to reestablish your roots here in Moab. And Ruth says, no, I want to be with you. Something Ruth has seen in Naomi is very attractive to her. She's seen that Naomi knows God. Naomi knows the one true God, which they wouldn't have done in Moab. And Ruth is very attracted to this and says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Ruth comes back with Naomi to Israel, a complete outsider. She knows no one. She doesn't speak the language. She's young. She's a widow. She's got a real kind of tragic history to her. And yet within a few short years, she's established in Israel. She's been accepted by the people she's with. She meets another man whose field she had been picking bits of corn off the edge. In those days, if you were hungry, you were allowed to go to rich people's fields and pick out the corn from the edge. And that's what Ruth was doing. And she got to know the man who owned the field, a man called Boaz. And they fell in love, and they got married. They had a son called Obed, and Obed had a son called Jesse. And when I was over here just now in Jesse's house, David's father's house, that's the Jesse that we're talking about. So Ruth was not only accepted, but became a really key part of David's family tree, and therefore Jesus' family tree. So as well as outsiders being welcomed into Jesus' family tree, there are also examples of some really bad behavior. And those of us who've done things we regret will find it easy to relate to these sorts of individuals. I, I, I think one person worth looking at that Matthew again wants to highlight to us, is Judah. Now, Judah is probably someone we do know of, although we might not realize it. If we're familiar with the musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Joseph is one of 12 brothers, one of whom is called Judah. So again, in the family tree, it says Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. One of those brothers, the famous one, was Joseph. So right at the beginning of that story, Joseph is sold into slavery. And guess what? It was Judah's idea to do that. So Judah was a really bad man. He sold his own brother into slavery. And actually, as time went by, Judah became even worse than that. He got into all sorts of scrapes, some of which were really very unpleasant, one of which involved him um, becoming, his, making his daughter-in-law pregnant. So he was a really awful character. And it's all there in the Bible. One of the great things about the Bible is it just tells it as it is. It doesn't gloss over difficult things. And Judah had a terrible, a terrible life uh, through, through entirely his own, his own fault. And yet here we see him in the family tree. It's quite extraordinary. Now, towards the end of Judah's life, when his father Jacob was dying, 
His father Jacob gave a blessing to all his children, which was what they did in those days. On your deathbed, you'd bless your children, and you'd tell them what you felt God was saying to them. And Jacob gives a very, very strange blessing to Judah, considering the kind of person Judah has been. He says to Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So scepter, that talks of royal prerogative, and the obedience of the peoples, that talks about kingship and loyalty. Now you're probably thinking, well, Jacob was a nice guy. He probably gave all his, all his sons lovely blessings. No, not at all. Some of the others you might remember from the musical, if nowhere else, Reuben, Issachar. Well, Reuben, he says, Reuben actually was the firstborn, so you'd expect him to have the, uh, the, the best blessing. He says, Reuben, says Jacob, Reuben, you are my firstborn, preeminent in dignity, but you're as, you're as unstable as water, and you shall not have preeminence. That's not very regal. And he calls out Issachar. Issachar, you're a strong donkey. <laughs> you're a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. It's not regal at all. And I won't go through the others, but there are a lot of very strange blessings, if you could even call them blessings. So Judah is singled out mysteriously. God has spoken to Jacob that Judah is the one through whom the kingly line will continue. In some senses, of course, we should not be surprised that the weak characters in Jesus' family tree are prominent in, in, in the list there. Matthew is, is far from trying to hide them. He's actually drawing attention to them. In fact, if we could just go back one slide, uh, it might be worth just pointing out, when I said that uh, Judah had made his daughter-in-law pregnant, her name was Tamar. So as you can see here, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, so it's not brushed aside. It's right there, center, peace. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus has come from a long line of actual humans with all their flaws and imperfections. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. You know, God uses the weak. God does not necessarily use the strong. There's a letter in the New Testament written to a young church in Corinth, in Greece, written about 50 AD. And in that letter, the writer, Paul, explicitly says, not many of you, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. But God chose what is weak in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's true, isn't it? If you look around here, there aren't many politicians in the room. There aren't many leaders. There aren't many super influential characters. There really aren't. You know, the churches that we visit, the churches that we're part of, they're made up of people like us, the weak, <laughs> those without power, those without influence, and that's who God chooses. And that's no secret. It's actually the way God works. It's not as if he chooses the weak, or wouldn't it be nice if he chose the weak? He actually does choose the weak to propagate his purposes. And because Jesus is human, with very human ancestors, that also gives us the assurance that we don't need to do anything special to win his favor. In another letter written to the early churches, which Paul quoted from this morning in, in Hebrews, we're told that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he, re he rewards those who seek him. Just those two simple things qualify you to draw near to God. You believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
So if we ever feel that we're not good enough to be a follower of Jesus, it's just not right. The answer to that feeling is that we don't need to be anything special to be noticed by Jesus. As we take even the smallest of steps towards him, it's as if he comes running towards us, and it becomes irresistible. Those small steps that we take towards him result in irresistible steps that he takes towards us. And it gets to the point where we can no longer resist his his invitation into his everlasting kingdom. Now, looking at Jesus himself right at the end of the family tree, the, the tempo and the rhythm changes. So when we start to look at the perfection of Jesus, we can see that up until this point, the family tree goes father, 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 and at the very end, where it goes father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, it suddenly changes its rhythm to say the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And Matthew is absolutely determined, he's putting it right in our face here, that Joseph was not Jesus' father. Mary was his mother, but God brought about an absolute miracle in bringing himself into humanity through Mary. Which means, of course, that Jesus wasn't tainted with the sin that entraps us all. And I'm not just talking about the terrible things that people do, the awful things. I'm talking about just those times when we're trying to do the right thing. We're we're trying to be friendly. We're trying to, to get stuff done. And it just doesn't work out, either through our own fault or the fault of other people around us. Jesus was not entrapped or ensnared by any of that which is fantastic news, that we're saying our king, our king Jesus, is perfect, which means he's got our best interests absolutely at heart. He's there for us. He's perfect. And that's such good news. It means that God loves us and wants to relate to us. All we need to do is turn towards him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Just those two simple things to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what's Matthew trying to tell us here? Because Jesus is a king, he does demand our allegiance. There's no getting away from that. Because he's human, we don't have to be anything special to win his favor. And because he's perfect, we know he's got our best interests at heart. Because he's a king, he demands our allegiance. Because he's human, we don't have to be anything special to win his favor. And because he's perfect, we know he's got our best interests at heart. So as we just conclude, it's worth pointing out that as we get into the Christmas season, we're going to hear this name Jesus probably a lot more than we do at other times of the year. Which makes it a great time to reflect on our perfect human king in the midst of all the the hectic preparation and and planning that we will have to go through as we get to grips with the seasonal activities. And it's worth thinking of people like Ruth or Judah. And we can all identify with them. Ruth, an outsider, a foreigner, completely powerless, really had nothing going for her at all. And even for those of us who aren't quite at that end of the spectrum, I'm sure that we can all identify with those feelings of, of being an outsider, Certainly I can. There are times, there are situations where where I do feel like an outsider. I don't feel connected. And that's something that Jesus absolutely deals with. We're connected to Jesus. When we're born again, of course, we're his son or daughter. So those feelings of being an outsider are just that. They're just feelings. They're not real. 
we are not outsiders. We are all part of Jesus' family. And for those of us who've done things we regret, and again, I'm going to include us all in that, we've all done things we regret. It might not have been at the same level as Judah, but nevertheless, we will all have done things that we regret. And Jesus absolutely deals with that. Jesus will deal with our regrets. We simply bring them to him. We don't try and hide them from him. We bring those regrets to Jesus, and we tell him about them. He already knows. So we tell Jesus about them, and we say we're sorry, and we turn away from them, and he forgives us. That's just amazing news. He forgives us. And when we're forgiven by God, we're forgiven. Jesus is our perfect human king. A king that seeks out the lost and the lonely, and the outsider and the outcast, but also seeks out all of us in our best moments and in our worst moments. He wants us. He really wants us. And Jesus has opened the way back to God for everyone that will follow him. So Matthew shows us that Jesus has an everlasting kingdom. And so because Jesus is alive, it means he's with us if we did but know it. He's with us. And so at difficult times, that's so good to know. Whether it be the stresses of preparing for Christmas, the people that we're going to be with. How, how lovely it is to be with family, right? It's great. But there are always things going wrong. There's food burning in the oven. The presents haven't been wrapped yet. You haven't done the tree. You're feeling really stressed, but you're really trying not to show it. <laughs> right. But Jesus is there. You just have to say, Jesus, please help me with this. And I would really want to be specific with you. Whatever your circumstances you're facing, and I'm not just talking about trivial ones, all right? I'm talking about real-life things that knock us for six. You need to use those words. Jesus, help me with this. And he will. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Just say to him, Jesus, please help me with this. And he will. Jesus is the perfect human king, and we're called to live under his loving leadership. His kingdom is one that has our very best interests at heart. And he's a king that seeks out and saves everyone who will respond to him. You only need to look at his family tree to see how inclusive and welcoming he is. And that is really good news. Could I ask the band to, to come down? And could I have the prayer team come down here to my left? And I would encourage you, if, if there's any of that for you this morning, to, to, to get someone to pray for you. It doesn't have to be the prayer team. It could be someone you're sat next to. I'd love to pray with you myself afterwards, as with Paul, Philip, and others that you would have seen at the front here. But, you know, if it's, if it's the hassle of Christmas and you just can't get it right, get prayer for that. If it's something you regret, get prayer for that. If it's a feeling that you're somehow an outsider, come and get prayer for that. And I would also say, if it's healing, come and get prayer for that. Paul spoke last week about God wanting to heal us, and it's so true. So if you would like healing for any aspect of your life, physical or otherwise, come and get prayer for that. I just want to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are our perfect human king. 